we, God, have been captured by the wondrous story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have given us a song to sing, a message to share, a foundation in the midst of the storms of life that is unmoving and unshakable. It is for this and so much more we are grateful. We ask that you would speak to our hearts anew and afresh as we open your word, asking for your spirit to guide this time that we have together to listen to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. If you have your copy of God's word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1. About five years ago, Oprah Winfrey ended her 25-year syndicated talk show with a culmination of what had been a theme of her shows over the past few years when she was on the air. If you watched her, if you listened to her, you would recognize why Christianity Today would have her on the cover and say that she was one of the most influential religious voices in America. Notice it wasn't that they said the most influential Christian voice, but the most influential religious voice. She was propagating something that has been a stream of new age spirituality within our culture that culminated with her looking into the camera and saying these words that in many ways encapsulate the thought of our culture. This is what she said, so what I know is God is love and God is life and your life is always speaking to you. There's much truth in these words, but it's not all truth. God is love is a biblical statement. First John would be at the very foundation of what she's saying there. But it's what she continues with. God is life and your life is always speaking to you. That really encapsulates a, a cultural stream. That the path to salvation, the path of tranquility, the path of understanding is to look deep inside oneself. That in all of us there is this Uh, God calling out to us. And if we look inside, if we nurture our inner self, then we would find the path to salvation, the path to peace. But notice as we're walking through God's word and we're walking through God's word to the church at Colossae, that Paul is going to come to this place where he points us to the source of our salvation. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, look within, be attuned to your life. But what he says is, look outside of yourself. Inside is the issue. We need to be redeemed for what we discover inside. And this is what Paul would say if you have your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Colossians 1. We'll start in verse 9 as we continue in this series entitled Christ the Sinner. Notice Paul's words. Julie Stuckley and Julie Stewart have read it to us in a powerful way from the message. I'll just reiterate what they read, reading from the English Standard Version, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain 
of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is petitioning God on behalf of the Christians here. What we discover in this section of Colossians is is Paul's petitionary prayer. It's, It's an invocation asking the Holy Spirit to strengthen these believers so that they might know uh, the very knowledge of his will. They might be able to bear fruit, that they might be able to endure with patience and joy. This is a prayer to enable, through the power of the Spirit, for these believers to walk in a worthy manner. But it's in an interesting way. It gets to verse 12, and like preachers are, are known to do, there, there can be a way that you get sidetracked here. So, so Paul is petitioning God, and in the middle of petitioning God for their walk, he gets to verse 12, and he begins to thank God for what is the basis of the walk. He begins to thank God for what is the foundation, and in verses 12 and 13 and 14, we discover him praising God for the salvation that they discovered in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And what we discover encapsulated in these few verses here is this wonderful summation of the very heart of the gospel. It's a wonderful answer to the question, what has God done for you, believer, in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ? What has God the Father done for every Christian that trusts him by faith and trusts in the finished work of the gospel? Were there five Five glorious truths of the gospel that just one after another ring forth from the praying words of Paul here. And the first that I want you to discover in your copy of God's word is right there in verse 12. What has God done for you? Well, he's qualified you for an inheritance that you don't deserve. That word inheritance right there, excuse me, that word qualified in your copy of God's word is a word that's used two times in the New Testament. One here, and the other in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Hikino is the word, and the word is utilized in 2 Corinthians to talk about how Paul was not worthy to be a proclaimer of the gospel. He's not worthy to be a minister of the gospel, but God has looked upon him and has qualified him in spite of his imperfections. And so Paul's using the word to talk about his call to salvation and our call to salvation. We are not perfectly righteous, but he qualifies us. We are not perfectly holy, but he qualifies us. We are not sinless, but God looks at our lack of qualifications to share in the inheritance of light, and he qualifies us. This is what Paul is saying in this passage. There are times in life where we receive things that we do not deserve, that you might have been qualified for something that in your own power, in your own ingenuity, in your own intellect, you did not deserve. There are times in life where you receive something that you could not have physically qualified for. There's a group of guys back in Mississippi that I used to run with, and they were a group of guys, and we would kind of run in the same way at the same pace, and oftentimes we get into extended conversations. And so one of the conversations one morning was, is what are you training for? And one of my acquaintances, he said, well, I'm training for the Boston Marathon. Now that surprised me because I could sort of keep up with this guy. And I thought to myself, Boston Marathon? I don't know. Do you understand that the Boston Marathon is the elite of U.S. marathons? It's not something that you just go on the Internet and, and give them your credit card number and then they charge you $110 for your registration. That, that's not how Boston works. You've got to 
BQ. You've got to Boston qualify. You've got to run another marathon at a specific speed. If you're 35 to 39 and you're a male, you've got to run a Boston qualifying marathon under three hours and 10 minutes. If you are a female and you're 35 to 39, you've got to run a Boston qualifying marathon in under three hours and 40 minutes. Every time I Google Boston qualifying numbers and paces, the internet collectively laughs at me. I don't know, (laughs) has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's just a unison of just, what are you doing here looking at this? So it is something that I I could never do, and it was something I knew this guy couldn't do because I was as fast as him. So I said, how in the world did you, when did you do this? What race did you run? Because I need to run that race because that's the kind of race that I want to run. And he said, well, I didn't, I didn't run a race. I, I didn't qualify. I mean, David, you know I couldn't run a Boston qualifying time, but I've got this friend of mine. He works at Adidas, and he made a deal with me that if I would kind of journal through my blog of my experience as an ordinary runner training for Boston, running Boston, that I would be qualified under the umbrella of Adidas. Well, in life, spiritually, there is a standard that you and I, apart from Christ, cannot meet. It is holiness. It is perfection. It is unblemished righteousness. But Christ, he has qualified us through his perfect keeping of the law, through his sacrificial death. And so his perfect righteousness is imputed into you. His perfect righteousness covers you. His sinless sacrifice becomes the very thing that qualifies you for this inheritance of the light. That word inheritance is a word that tips us off to something that's happening in Colossians. All of what Paul's talking about is alluding back to that great salvation story of the Israelites coming out of Egyptian captivity. And this is one of the first words that that word inheritance, it harkens back to the Israelites. They're being in bondage, they're being in Egypt, and God calling them out not based upon their ingenuity, not based upon their good works, but he parts the Red Sea, he sends the plagues, and he brings them through the wilderness to what? An inheritance of the promised land. An inheritance of the tribes of Israel that would be allotted to them of the land that they did not in their strength win, they did not conquer, but God has done it for them. So just as that has happened then, so we receive an inheritance through the qualification of God's finished work. But that's not where it stops. It's not what it stops here because secondly, we discover in this passage that not only has he qualified you for an inheritance that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve, but he has delivered you from a darkness that blinds. Again, in verse 13, notice that he's delivered us from the domain of darkness, light, darkness. These are images, metaphors all throughout the New Testament that talk about our spiritual state. John's gospel, the first introduction that we have through John the Baptist of Jesus is that John the Baptist isn't the light, but he would be the precursor. He's the forerunner of the light that would give light to everyone. This is Jesus Christ. Paul writing to another church, the book of Ephesus, he would come to this place in Ephesians chapter 5, and he would say, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're light. Light in the Lord, he says, walk as children of the light. See, what Paul is saying is that you and me, without Jesus Christ, we are spiritually in the dark. 
Now, you can do a lot of things in the dark. Don't misunderstand me. There, there can be professions that are had in the dark. There can be marriages that have happened in the dark. There can be a successful climbing of the corporate ladder in the dark. But spiritually, without the light of the gospel shining upon us, we are not aware, first, of our sinful state and of the solution in the finished work of the gospel. We need not something that we discover within us, but we need the light from without, the light of the gospel to shine upon us through his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit to illumine us. This is what Newton would say. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Paul says in this passage here that he's delivered us from the darkness that blinds. Notice the way he describes the darkness, the domain of darkness. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity where he's talking about what Christ has done for all of us as we were in that enemy-occupied territory. Notice what he says in mere Christianity. Enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. What Lewis is talking about is what Paul is talking about. He's delivered us through the finished work of the gospel from a darkness that blinds. Not only that, but he has transferred you to the kingdom of light. I told you again, all throughout this section, there are all of these allusions here to this first Exodus story. What Paul is doing is, is he's using this template for what God has done in the Old Testament to be this template for what he has done for us through Christ as believers. And so that word transferred is a word that was used outside of the New Testament to talk about the immigration of, of nations. That when people groups were moved from one place to the next place, they were this word right here, transferred. So as Paul is using this, he's talking again back to that Exodus story. He's talking again about how God has looked upon the, Egypt, uh, looked upon the Israelites in their Egyptian captivity, in the hand of slavery under Pharaoh, and he has brought them, he has transported them, again, not through their works, but his finished work, to a new land. We have recently moved, and we're very thankful to be here in this community, here at this church, people are so welcoming to us. We're still in the process of crossing T's and dotting I's. One of that is, is leaving forwarding addresses for the mail in Mississippi to get here. And I went back two weeks ago to the house that, that we'll close on this week, actually. Our house sold. We had a contract on it before the sign went up in the yard. That, to me, again, was just God's gracious confirmation of his call upon this church and upon the Eldridge family. It was just a sweet point of grace. That's an aside. See, I told you, Paul goes on the sides here, and so this preacher goes on the sides. So I walked to my mailbox, and I looked in the mailbox of our, our house that we lived in, made wonderful memories in, and I opened the mailbox, and there was one letter in it, and I picked it out and it said, vacant, vacant. And so it was a reminder to the postal worker, for him or her, as they came to my house, to not put the mail in there because there was a forwarding address to Homewood, Alabama. There was a forwarding address to a new address that we are occupying now. 
And so what Christ has done for you, Christian, is that he has delivered you. He has transported you from the old address of your sinful state. He has transferred you from the bondage to flesh, the bondage to sin, and he has brought you to a new forwarding address under his inheritance in his kingdom. This is the truth of the gospel. But there's more to it. There's more to it. Paul continues this refrain one after another. Not only has he transferred you, not only has delivered you, not only has he qualified you, but we see fourthly here in this passage that he has redeemed you from a debt that you could not pay. Notice in verse 14, this refrain that we talked about last week, in whom we have redemption. These are Paul's words in verse 14, the forgiveness of sin. I told you that there is a theme of Pauline literature that we discover 18 times in the book of Colossians. That he has a shorthand, a way of summing up the gospel, the way of summing up salvation by using the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So 18 times we're going to hear that. This is a variation of it because he says in whom we have redemption. That word redemption would have been familiar to every person that heard the letter read aloud in that church. It was a first century Greco-Roman term that was for the slave auctions. Redemption was when the slave was brought into the auction there. If enough capital was raised, that he or she could buy their freedom. That he or she, with enough capital that was raised, could buy their freedom because it was more profitable to the owner for them to raise that money than they knew that they could make in the the free market. And so what Paul is saying for you and for me, for those that trust by faith in the finished work of the gospel, that there has been a price that has been paid for your freedom and for my freedom. There has been a redemption that has been paid. He and the great hymn that we have sung and that you know, he has paid it all. Jesus has a a quick description in Mark's gospel that really summarizes this very thing that Paul is saying in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That ransom is that payment for the redemption that we could not raise through our good works, that we could not borrow from the prayers of faithful family members or friends. It could only be paid by the one who had enough eternal capital through his perfect righteousness and sacrificial death, and that is Jesus Christ. But that's not the only thing that he's done for us. The last truth that I want you to hang your faith upon this morning is not only has he redeemed you, not only has he transferred you, not only has he qualified you, but he, from Paul's word, he has forgiven us from the sins that separate us from him. You see, we need to all understand that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That be it gossip, be it gluttony, be it materialism, be it racism, be it pride, be it prejudice. All of us have sins that so easily entangle us. It very well may not be the sins of this pastor, but all of us have sins that lead us astray. All of us, like Adam and Eve, have, have gone in the way of taking of the fruit and eating of the fruit. And all of us, like Adam and Eve, cannot, because of our sin, stay in relationship with God. We're all outside of the garden because of our sin. But there's one who's made a way. There's one, no matter what you thought, 
no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long that litany of sins that is known and unknown by family and friends, that when you place your faith in him, he forgives you of all. Not only sins of commission, but sins of omission, things that you should have done that you didn't do, things that you shouldn't have done that you did do. He forgives it all when you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. These five truths come to be a crescendo that the Apostle Paul wants us to sing as the very heartbeat of our faith. Are these truths your truths. You see, there's a temptation. There's a temptation for us in the 21st century to hear these wonderful truths and miss the very point of what Paul is saying. You see, the point of what Paul is saying is, is that he wants to fix our faith upon the subject of these verbs. Did you see? Did you see the subject? Because it's easy for us to miss this here. Notice back in your copy of God's word, he qualifies us, he has delivered us, he has transferred us, he has forgiven us, he has redeemed us. God is the subject of your salvation. God is the one who does this work. See, there's a temptation for us to hear this in 21st century America and, and, and live under the litany of, well, if it's free, it must not be worth much. You know, if it's free, it's really cheap. And, and if it really doesn't cost us, I want to earn my way, we say. Anything that's worthwhile in life, it, you've got you to give something. You've got to put one foot forward and then God would do the rest, right? If you do your part, then God would do his part, right? I love the Marines and you love the Marines. There was a slogan for the Marines that oftentimes becomes a misunderstanding of the gospel. And that slogan is a slogan that you see here, earned, never given. And there's some of us that have heard the Christian truth of the gospel and we're still thinking that we have to earn it. But in actuality, what Paul is saying for all of us to hear is that the gospel is the antithesis to this. It is always given, never earned. You can't earn it, I can't earn it, but he has earned it and we receive it by faith. I remember as a young pastor, I've got to change my adjectives because I know sometimes I say young pastor and you say, well, how old do you think you are right now? So <laughs> as a younger pastor, I was called to the hospital of one of our really faithful patriarchs of the church. And it was one of those calls that pastors get. It's one of those calls that family members get. Come quickly. Things don't look good. Walked into the hospital room I was able to, to sit down with someone that had become a friend of mine, a faithful member of the church that I was serving. I'll call him Mr. Smith. His name wasn't Mr. Smith, but I sat with him. And he had a look of, of fear in his eyes. And it was the first time that his voice began to falter in many ways. And so I asked him, Mr. Smith, are you sure that if this in these days ahead of you, if, are you sure of the gospel of Jesus Christ upon your life? Have you ever trusted Christ as your Savior and as your Lord? And he looked at me, one who had sat in pews of the church that I pastored for decades, one who had sat around tables, chairing committees, and he said, David, I have tried to live a good life. 
And I hope that God will look upon me and see that I've tried to serve him. I've tried to love him. I've tried to be a good person. Oh, and I respected him and I loved him. And, and, and in many ways, we continued the conversation. But I left there and I am preaching this message to you that one day, decades from now, that I would never be called to the hospital and ask you, are you sure of the certainty of your future? Do you know who holds your future in his hands? And you would look at me and say, I've tried. I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be good enough. Do you understand that if you don't get the ABCs of the gospel sure in your life, that you can never have assurance in the Y and Z of your life? That if you don't understand foundationally that it is not in our trying, it is not in our doing, it is not in our striving that we are granted assurance and salvation, but it is in his finished work. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth that is so staggeringly amazing. When was the last time you've been amazed by the grace that you've received by faith in his finished work? A couple months ago, before we entered into this journey with Dawson, I took my second child, my middle son, Luke, to Chicago we have a tradition that is really newly minted in our family that when our children, our boys turn 10, we have a pilgrimage to the earthly holy land of Wrigley Field. <laughs> so I wake them up early. There are 18 months difference between Hayden and Luke. So 18 months ago approximately, I woke up Hayden and off we go, two-day trip to Wrigley, just me and him. So we did this recently with my middle son, so we go to Wrigley because in life, you want to have priorities. And the priorities in life are God's word, respect your mother, love the Chicago Cubs, those kinds of things there. And so we go to a Cubs game one day. And I love Chicago because outside of New York City, many of you know this, that Chicago is just this wonderful place. The museums are, are great. So we go to the zoo, go to the field museum, go to the aquarium. But we always put an exclamation point on the trip by going to the Art Institute so I've been to this many, many times. And so when I'm taking just my son, uh, oftentimes the art museum is always is, is closing pretty early in our day. So around five or six o'clock, the art museum is uh, closing. And so we come to the Art Institute. And if you walk in, they'll give you sort of cliff notes. You're here at the Art Institute. These are the 15, you know, just most famous works that you have to see. So I want my boys to see these works, to be able to be beside them, for me to be able to take their picture in front of it, to convince my wife that I'm not taking them to just 17 Chicago Cubs games when we go here. And so we do this. And it's oftentimes an hour that we have in the Art Institute to run from one picture to the next. That is a Picasso. That is a Monet. That is Rene, uh, uh, Renoir there. That is uh, Grant Wood. Yes, he's got a pitchfork. He's got his wife right there. There's the barn behind him. Yes, that's what that is there. And so we're making our way to the modern section in the Art Institute, and we really are blitzing it. And we walk in there, and there's some Jackson Pollock. So Jackson Pollock is just this huge canvas, and there's just this cascading of colors going in all these different directions. It's very difficult to sort of, unless you're really an art aficionado of Jackson Pollock, it's sort of 
hard to appreciate the, the depth of beauty. And again, this is my lack of culture more than anything else. But I was sitting there and I was showing it to him and we were blitzing off to the next one. And there was this young lady who was sitting on a chair, really one, one of these uh, benches. And she had a tear streaming down her face and she was saying, amazing, amazing, amazing. Listen, I'm not trying to be an evangelist for Jackson Pollock here, but, but it's easy for us to travel through the gallery of God's wondrous work for your salvation and my salvation. And we blitz it. At times we yawn our way through it. At times we say, seen it, seen it. Seen it, seen it. But when was the last time that you set before him, basked in the amazing work of his grace for you? When was the last time that what he has done for you brought you to tears? When was the last time that you've recognized, not only in your head, but in the very depth of your heart, that he has done this for you? You in your unrighteousness. You in your sinful state. You far from God. Whether it be as a five-year-old, whether it be as a 45-year-old, that this is what's amazing about his wondrous grace is that he would have died for me. He would die for you. He would die for us. And if we would only trust him we would not have to strive we would not have to try we would not have to say I'm going to do my part so when I get to the y and z of my life I will have assurance the gospel is this wondrous truth that he has done it all for you this is what's amazing about this gift he has paid it all this is the gospel let us pray. Maybe you're here today and you're striving, you're trying, and today's the day that you've realized it's a gift. It's a gift that you cannot earn, but you must accept. Would you turn to Jesus? Would you say, God, I realize today that my sole source of salvation rests not within me, but in you and what you have done. Today, I turn to you. Thank you that you have paid it all. The transfer, the deliverance, the light that I could not turn on, you have. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer, but you've grown familiar. You've grown way too accustomed and you've lost the amazing of the story of grace in your life. Maybe today is a day that you just ponder anew and afresh what he has done for you in your salvation. Lord, thank you that you have paid it all. Thank you that our deliverance, our transfer, our qualification, it all rests in you. It's only when we rest in you that we find true comfort. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.